Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The chair recognizes Alderman Lopez. I move that all items previously sent to rules committee be re-referred to their original committee. The chair um, <laughs> motion is out of order. Madam President, this is the same motion that Alderman Riley used last month when all items were sent to rules. It's actually not the same motion. Um, and I, you have to, you, there's... Then I would move to temporarily <laughs> suspend the rules to re-refer these items. There you are. Oh, there's a motion there on the floor. By roll call vote, please. I move to lay it on the table. Uh, I think the roll call comes first. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there is a motion on the floor to suspend the rules. All right, that's enough. Hey, everybody, how's it going? <laughs> Well, that's, yeah, it's so confusing. <laughs> Lay it on the table. Yeah. Uh, this is the time I'd say we are live. We're actually not live at the moment. I'm working on that as we go along. We'll see if we get live as the show goes along. But if you uh, didn't catch the live show and you're listening on the download, welcome to the download. The Vindorovsky <laughs> show. <laughs> we have some laptop issues. I'm just going to put it out there. We never hit anything in, from our listeners in the no. past. We have laptop issues, ladies and gentlemen. My laptop's in Kentucky, and one of Dennis's two laptops is just literally falling apart as oh, we yeah. speak. As we, I hear it gasping. <laughs> <laughs> That's Dennis's laptop. <laughs> yeah, had malfunctions, but hey, we could still do the show. Welcome to the download. Okay, the Ben Jarofsky Show for Thursday, October 28th, is brought to you by, by the way, I'm a uh, not in my studio closet in Chicago. I'm downstate. But anyway, uh, your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, October 28th is brought to you by the Chicago Federation of Labor, SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Teachers Union and Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke and so much more. Chicagoreader.com. Check it out. And if you want to help out this program, you can chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. It is Thursday, October 28th, and live from downstate Illinois and his attic, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, the one, the only, it's the return of Miles Camp Lassen. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Budget Bliss Thursday, and here's why. Mayor Lori Lightfoot passed her budget. City Council passed it for her, and I stole that line. Budget Bliss from the Sun-Times. Thank you, Sun-Times headline writers. That's pretty cool. Budget Bliss. Mayor 16.7B. Budget Bliss is the headline of my beloved Bright One Home Delivered, as always. Yes, they managed to home deliver it today. Uh, the delivery system is working well. By the way, as I said earlier, our laptops are broken down. My laptop broke. is in Kentucky getting fixed. Why they have to send a laptop from Chicago to Kentucky to fix it, I do not know. Yeah, that's an interesting one. 
I mean that. Yeah, <laughs> we, my wife and I are discussing that. Why did they send it to Kentucky? Do I have any? Like, I bought it from Best Buy. There was we have the Geek Squad. What? There's no geekers in the back room. They got to send it to Kentucky. It's in Kentucky as we speak. I think it's uh, watching the Running of the Roses. It's checking out the Kentucky Derby. What a thought! My computer just going to our racetrack anyway so my computer's down dennis's computer is down this is his old boule computer he picked up somewhere along the way i can't remember where it's we, we when the show began dennis go listen to my computer the computer was literally making gasping sounds well, it was more like beep beep <laughs> i kind of like my gasping sounds they may not have been accurate but i liked them I want to give a shout out to uh, producer Vicky, uh, Dennis's mom. That the reason Dennis is in downstate Alton is beloved Alton. It's not just because he has a longing for his hometown and wants to hang out on the Mississippi River and go fishing and chop wood like he always does when he's in Alton. No, uh, his mom was a little under the weather apparently, and she's doing well, right, D? Oh yeah, she's good. She's good. She's good. had a little surgery, had a little back issues. We're doing good now. So I'm really happy to hear that producer Vicky get well. Uh, there would be no Dr. D if there wasn't Mrs. V. Whoa. Hey, I should be a rapper. Uh, no, you should. Bunch of bli- <laughs> no, no, I shouldn't. Yes, you're right. D. Budget bliss in the Chicago city council. They're so happy in the Chicago, city. 35 votes for the budgets. Uh, you know, like the, there's the old school people go around. Oh, got 47. God, we are a weird city. You know what I mean? Totally uh, kowtowing to the mayor is a sign of the mayor's strength and our city's vigor. They got 35 votes. Not bad. You know, yeah, look, all you need is 26 to pass. Actually, 25. Technically, the mayor would be the decisive vote. So really, I always thought it was exaggeration uh, to and a distortion of democracy to put so much emphasis on how many votes the mayor got uh, for uh, her his or her budget. But congratulations, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. The Sun-Times, Fran Spielman notes that the mayor likes to uh, enjoy a cigar, a steak and a what is it? A glass of brandy. Who doesn't? Is it? Yeah, no scotch. Excuse me, I excuse me, friends. Bill and scotch, not brandy. Yeah, who doesn't? Uh, when a budget passes, and now, uh, friends, Bill says she can enjoy dessert. How about that? D, a little chocolate cake or whatever she likes, a little ice cream. I don't know what the mayor likes, uh, because her budget passed. And uh, you know, it's funny. I, I don't want to. Uh, Miles Conflas and his joint is already wearing his Bulls jersey, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that. He's getting ready for tonight's game. I don't want to rain on Mayor Lori Lightfoot's parade, but if you can't pass a budget when Joe Biden has given the city billions of dollars uh, and uh, a pandemic relief funds, I don't know. Bar's awfully low for mayors. I know that's so mean and nasty. And so, like, Chicago sports fan of me to – you know, it's like the Bulls are right now are four and zero, and a lot of the naysayers. Well, I haven't played anyone any good, Ben. So it's kind of the equivalent with budgets. You know, well, Mayor, I mean, Joe Biden gave you all that money anyway. So congratulations. I remember back in the day when Daly was mayor. This is a long time ago, before Dennis was in grammar school and Miles was just a young lad in um, Beverly. Mayor Daly would pass a budget and then, uh, or excuse me, the city council would pass a budget on D- Mayor Daly's behalf. And then the mayor would make the rounds of the uh, various editorial boards. We so go to the Tribune, you go to the Sun-Times and Cranes. I think it was the big three. You know, obviously didn't go to the reader. There was no editorial board at the reader. Alternative newspaper for the reader would have come to my house. Could you imagine if Mayor Daly came to my house? Ding dong, the mayor's here. Back then, folks, I was like the lefty in Chicago. The one lefty. Now I got Miles to keep me company and a few others. But back in the 90s, it was me. 
Mayor Daly. All right, let's discuss your leftist issues, Ben. Anyway, uh, it, would, it would be such a big thing. The mayor passed a budget. It's like Chicago loves like powerful mayors who pass budgets. It's like a oh, big old macho thing. They don't even know what's in the budget. Half the budget's lies. Your tax bill's a lie. <laughs> I don't want to really rain on your parade, ladies and gentlemen, but it's a fact. So they would get together and they would talk about the future of Chicago and how you have to crack down if it was Cranes or the Tribune. You have to crack down on those unions and cut those pensions and spend more money downtown. And the mayor would be like, yeah, yeah, we got to do that. And then like the Sun-Times was the quasi-liberal group. So, well, you know, every now and then you got to spend some money in the neighborhoods. Yeah, we're doing that too. We're building libraries. I got to say this about Mayor Daly. He really loved libraries. Rom, not so much. Mayor Rom was not a library lover. In fact, in Mayor Rahm's first budget, uh, he proposed cutting the libraries. It's true. He proposed cutting the libraries, and he was stunned. He was stunned when there was an uprising for middle-class white women on the north side of Chicago. A lot of them mothers taking their kids to the library. What did Mayor Rahm know about libraries? First of all, he doesn't read. I mean, he pretends he reads, so he doesn't read. And if he does read, he gets it from Amazon. Wait, people go to libraries? I didn't know that. So he backed off on that one. But he, he stayed with the whole cutting of the schools thing. Speaking of which, another headline in the paper. Which one is it? The Tribune? Oh, yes. No, my beloved bright one. And it's in the Tribune as well. Class size. Oh, my God. Chicago Sun-Times. <laughs> That's really. <laughs> come on, bright one. Class size. Not S-I-Z-E, but S-I-G-H-S. Uh, enrollment at CPS down for the 10th year in a row. Gee, let me guess. Mayor Rahm closed 50 schools and enrollment has fallen and it's continuing to falling. Whoa. But they don't draw that correlation. They never draw a correlation between cutting spending for things that people need and want and then something like a consequence like people living in the city of Chicago or raising taxes for things people don't want like Lincoln Yards, all the other TIFs in the city. And people being forced out of the city. Never draw that correlation. That's, of course, left to the leftist press. Me and Miles and a handful of other lefties in this city that are allowed to function. Anyway, one last bit before we uh, bring Miles on. I want to apologize to all my listeners yesterday. Uh, Dennis, a big mistake on my part. Uh-oh. Uh, and uh, so yesterday, remember, I was uh, going on in one of my uh, many rants, uh, brilliant uh, thought waves about Johnny Catanzara, the head of the Fraternal Order of Police, uh, and perhaps the most talked about person on the show, not named Lori Lightfoot. And I was saying he's wearing this blue shirt. It looks like a uh, Kansas City Royal shirt. Remember that day? Uh, yeah. Because uh, it, was, it was about my bright one. The paper was supposed to come on Monday. It arrived Tuesday. Maybe it was the other way around. I can't remember. Uh, maybe it was supposed to come Tuesday and arrive. Whatever. It doesn't matter when it came. Technicality, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, I didn't recognize the shirt. And today's bright one, they love putting pictures of Cat and Zara in there. They had a frontal picture of him. And oh, duh, it was a Chicago Police Department shirt. Same kind of color, D, as the Kansas City Royals. All right. But the, sh- the picture on Monday had it from the back. So could you go back, Dennis, and edit that out so I don't look really dumb? Yeah, sure thing. I'll edit that out. Um, <laughs> I mean, I thought it was going to be a way worse mistake. Oh, listen to the computer. Listen to this. Hear that? Hear that beeping? Is that your computer? Oh, yeah. All right. All right. Let's further ado, let's bring on the great the uh, Miles Conflassen, uh, editor, writer for In These Times, proud graduate of uh, Whitney Young, uh, resident of Beverly and a huge Bulls fan. 
He's wearing a... Is that a Joe Kim Noah jersey? I can't tell, Miles. Is that a Joe Kim Noah? Yes, it is. Number 13. Joe Kim Noah, the pride and joy of the Chicago Bulls, will be honored tonight uh, at the Bulls game. Miles and I will be going to the game. We'll be sort of sitting in the same general area. That's where they put the broke-ass leftists. Way up high. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, Rom won't be sitting up there in the nosebleed sections, Miles, if she shows up. Mayor Lori Lightfoot won't be sitting up there in the nosebleed sections if she shows up. The writers of the uh, Chicago Tribune editorial board won't be sitting up in the... Anyway, Miles, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Um, yeah, currently residing in Logan Square, but a native of Beverly and was just down there the other day visiting my folks who have their uh, uh, place decorated in a very haunting manner, like many of the uh, houses. That's one great thing I will say about the neighborhood of Beverly in Chicago. Excellent trick-or-treating. That is some of the, you'll get whole <laughs> Snickers bars sometimes. Very fond memories of being a kid. And people really go all out for their um, their decorations. One thing I will say, we, are, we will not be sitting near Rom or Lori, I bet, up in our 300-level nosebleeds then. Uh, but because the Chicago Sky World Champions are, you know, just on the upswing of their uh, time in the limelight, when I was going to the games at the Wintrust Arena, I was sitting just two rows behind Mayor Lori Lightfoot, uh, and I could still afford those tickets. They were still like 40, 50 bucks, and I was right behind uh, the mayor herself. So, I mean, I've got plenty of disagreements with um, with certainly Lori Lightfoot and her administration, but hey, I'm just happy people are out there enjoying uh, the WNBA and cheering on the world champion Chicago Sky. Well, I got to give uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot credit for, on that front. She was uh, on the Sky bandwagon long before it was fashionable. Uh, and uh, so as such, she wasn't like me. I openly admit, Miles, that I jumped aboard uh, during this playoff run. I mean, I, you know, as a sports fan, an obsessive sports fan, I should say, I'm pretty much always aware of what's going on in sports, which, by the way, is curiously the exact opposite of so many other people in my life who as I don't want to call them sports haters. We had a classic example of this on the show yesterday. Sergio Mims was on the show, uh, the co-founder of the Black Harvest Film Festival. Sergio knows nothing about sports, absolutely nothing. Okay, and he wasn't aware of the Blackhawk sex scandal uh, that's going on, where one uh, the Blackhawk coach sexually assaulted one of the players in the Blackhawks car. He didn't know that up. He didn't even know that was going on. It was front page news. So, and he's not the only one. I don't want to embarrass anyone in my life, but there's quite a few people that I've been bumping into that, like, I would ask them about, they go, what? You know, they just, they, they, they're unaware of it. Um, Well, I don't uh, begrudge anybody for not paying, you know, too close attention to stats and standings and all of that, though I will say sports is part of our culture here in this country, and it certainly intersects with issues around politics, around labor, around, you know, gender rights and all kinds of things that we, I think, need to pay attention to just in terms of how, you know, our society uh, sets its priorities and where we, you know, decide we should have um, fights over what, you know, what we want to lift up as justice. Just look at the role of both the WNBA and the NBA in last summer's racial justice uprisings. You know, it's it was a it was a time where we actually had professional athletes 
uh, taking a stand, you know, and at one point withholding their labor because of anger over unjustified police shootings. That's just one example of like how sports can intersect with um, other elements of our society. And so it's, you know, I think it's important that people have some kind of general understanding. But that said, I mean, no problem if you're not a sporto. That's, you know, you can leave that to the obsessives out there who want to care about fantasy ratings and all that. Uh, yeah. I, uh, so anyway, what I was saying was I was, uh, by the way, con- the converse, uh, of what you said is the reaction to Colin Kaepernick. So yes, there's, there's the intersection. You're absolutely correct where sports and politics intersect. Uh, so yes, the WNBA, particularly the WNBA, the women in the WNBA are f- far ahead of any other, in my opinion, of sports organization in terms of being progressives or leftists, whatever we are. Uh, but then the, the reverse is the uh, owners of the NFL and the way they reacted to Colin Kaepernick when he took his knee and essentially uh, kicking him out of the league and let it be known that they didn't uh, want uh, any protests of that kind. And if you notice it's subsided, uh, I, I don't even think it's an issue this year. So if you could argue that they were effective uh, in clamping down uh, on players. Well, it's a whole different uh, league. You know, they don't have as, as many protections as the NBA players do. Uh, and so they're far more exposed. So that just proves your point even more. Where, again, there's uh, an intersection between politics and sports because the NFL proves uh, miles that if the workers don't have rights and protections to a certain degree, they're easier to shut up in silence. Exactly. And when the Milwaukee Bucks refused to take the court, you know, after Jacob Blake's murder in, in Milwaukee, they stopped the league, you know, they stopped the production of basketball being played and that the they caused a reckoning. You know, you remember watching the probably watching TBS or ESPN or whatever it was, and they didn't know what to say because they didn't have a game to call anymore because the players took the um, took that into their hands. So not to rehash everything, but I mean, I just think, you know, if we, we it's, it's easy to be dismissive of sports, I think, especially for those some some of those of us on the, the left as kind of, you know, this is just you know, mass culture or something and we shouldn't pay attention to it, but it does impact, uh, you know, especially how people view the lens through which people view these other issues, including things around um, racial justice. Yeah. I just want to say uh, it was James Blake, uh, excuse me, uh, Jacob Blake uh, shooting, not murder. He was shot, but he was not murdered uh, in Kenosha. All right. Uh, Before I go, I really wanted to talk to you uh, at length about the reconciliation process, what's happening uh, nationally. And we've we've talked about this from time to time. But since we're starting local, let's stick here for a while. And since we're uh, uh, we're talking about um, uh, what's happening in Beverly, your neck of the woods or where you grew up anyway, no longer your neck of the woods. Uh, let's talk about something that's really on my mind these days, uh, and that is the uh, the anti-vax movement, uh, or the anti-mandate, I should say, movement. Um, at first, Miles, I must confess, I, I sort of made fun. Oh, I still kind of make fun of it, because uh, it's so absurd in my mind. This is me speaking. But I must, uh, I got to have to tell you uh, that it's, had legs beyond anything I could imagine. Uh, I've never seen an uprising like this 
kept it move into local politics as it has. So it's basically a right wing movement. Uh, but we see here in locally in Chicago, Johnny Catanzara, the head of Turner police making a local movement. Uh, and he's been joined by several aldermen in the city of Chicago who obviously take very seriously his threat to run candidates against them. So this is getting like uh, Southwest side of Chicago, uh, the Beverly area, uh, uh, and, um, Mount Greenwood area and on the northwest side of Chicago as well. Uh, so it's really it's it's it has legs um, that I didn't see. Uh, and it's taken hold in a way that I hadn't predicted. It's caught me by surprise. Uh, what's your take on the anti uh, uh, vaccine movement, the cries for liberty coming from so many people uh, on the right and spilling over uh, into Chicago politics? Well, it's a useful wedge issue for those who want to protest just general and, you know, role, the role of government in any any of our lives. You know, if you want to make your case around, it's not so far afield even from some of the um, Tea Party rallies. If you think about, you know, what the driving agenda was that was behind those um, protests, it was just get the government out of my life, essentially. Um, and the reason that worked is because government was posed as some kind of tyrannical force that was being used to limit people's freedom rather than, you know, a guarantor of rights, which is, you know, for those those of us on the left want to see a government that's built on different foundations, not on things like, you know, surveillance capitalism and all the other uh, things that, you know, a certain people associate with government or big government. Um, and the right has long railed against you know, government intervention in, in our lives. And the vaccine is just another opportunity to, to do that. And people that are, you know, going to be more sympathetic to that type of viewpoint, I think even if they are, they can get over the cognitive, you know, imbalance of them being vaccinated themselves and still, while still also believing that a vaccine mandate is somehow overreach um, because they're inclined to, you know, view, have a less than sympathetic view of government. Um, where that falls apart is just any other vaccine that they're required to get. You know, you look at things like, you know, measles, mumps, polio, all these other diseases that have had, um, vaccines for a long time and requirements to go to schools to get on to you know teams to do extracurricular activities where were any of these people when you know they were forced by the government you know to get these injections where were their protests then it's specifically around covid because um it all spins out from the whole pandemic idea you know that this was somehow a hoax or you know that there was there was nefarious um, interest behind the spreading of the COVID pandemic. One thing I'll just say about all this, though, it sounds like, you know, uh, real, like I'm saying that there's a huge current in our country that is protesting vaccines. Um, this isn't at the level of the, the tactics are similar to the Tea Party, but it's not at the same level. I mean, there's people that are going into school board meetings, but this isn't a movement. And one thing that I think is especially important to clear up, we actually published a piece on this uh, today at In These Times. There's a, a really starting, startlingly uh, upsetting view that I think a lot of people that are not familiar with what is going on and uh, the labor movement in this country 
thinking that the wave of strikes that we've seen at places like John Deere, Kellogg's, at healthcare providers, we almost had a strike at Yahtzee, the Hollywood workers. Um, People are calling it striketober because of the massive amount of labor action that's happening right now. Um, There's a startling number of people that that, that think that's because of vaccine mandates. Um, that people are actually striking over their objections to requirements to get the COVID vaccine when that could not be farther from the truth. You know, these um, these strikes are about pay, about working conditions, about hours on the job, largely. And if you look at um, the um, the rates that, you know, they all these employers, you know, because they're mandated, they uh, track how their employees have gotten vaccinated. Many of these places that are on strike have 90 to 100% vaccination levels. And even the ones that want to be involved in how the mandate is laid out, that's a question of collective bargaining, right? It's not just outright opposition to the, the vaccine. If you say, hey, we want to have a say in how this mandate is rolled out, that's a question of having power on the job, not just outrightly saying we want to we don't want to get vaccinated. And I think the press, the mainstream press has done a really awful job of laying that out and has led to this misconception that somehow the labor action we're seeing is about vaccine mandates. Now there's some labor action. You could call it that among the far right unions, like the cop unions, like Canizera's FOP in Chicago, like you mentioned, but those aren't strikes. Those are, you know, them just raising hell over some stuff. They're not, you know, getting fighting over a contract by doing doing this, they're small scale protests. So I think we should really be clear about the difference when we talk about, um, it is a very upsetting, you know, development that there's so much resistance to the vaccine, but that's not driving uh, a lot of this labor activity. And it certainly isn't at the level of like, you know, the Tea Party or other right wing movements we've seen in the recent past here in America. So do you think it could be a force in uh, elections? Yeah, the uh, anti-vaccine uh, movement in this country. So, for instance, uh, going back to the NBA, uh, we have Kyrie Irving, uh, one player, very uh, taking a very public stand against getting vaccinated and uh, will give up his season, although not his paycheck. He's still going to get $17 million. Let's just pause to think about that for a moment uh, to not play basketball. And um, he has his defenders. Uh, uh and so when I when I listen to their rhetoric, I, of course, as I said, uh, Miles, think it's absurd. And then I wonder, well, how will it play out in an election? So how will it play out? Let's say, I don't know, the well, it's very state to state. But right now, the, the, the big election that everybody's watching, uh, who's a political junkie, is Virginia gubernatorial Terry McCullough versus Glenn Youngkin. So how how do you think sort of the the, the passion uh, against mandates and against even masks, even how do you think that will play out uh, politically? Well, on a large scale, I think certainly on a statewide scale, it, there's no it, it can rev up your base a little bit. And certainly Yunkin is trying to appeal to the Trump base. But he knows that vaccine mandates are overwhelmingly popular, especially including in Virginia. So he's not going to run against them on a state level. I think on some, uh, you know, in some of these school board races, very small scale races, you'll see people just taking up the mantle. But I think more what you'll see is just wink and nod type of behavior, you know, that is by and large what the GOP is doing to deal with the MAGA problem. 
problem is they don't want to cling to Trump. Even look at what Youngkin is doing right now. He doesn't want Trump to come to Virginia before the election uh, because he knows he's trying to walk this tightrope between appealing to the Trump base while still trying to peel off independence to, you know, win the election from McCall. So he doesn't want Trump there, but he does want, he certainly doesn't want Trump to be denouncing him or anything like that. So he's walking that line. I think a similar thing is true when it comes to the vaccine stuff, because they don't, they know vaccines are still popular and they'll turn off, you know, Republicans on a national or statewide level will turn off um, huge amounts of independent voters who favor um, there being protections against a deadly disease that has run amok and, you know, upended American life for the past uh, year and a half. Um, most people are, are behind that. The, the ones that are not are the people that are on the extremes. And those are the people that are, you know, at upsetting the school board meetings that are, um, that might be driving some of that base activity. So in small scale elections, you know, you might have a Marjorie Taylor Greene who's going to run on anti-vaccine stuff and be successful in a, you know, plus 20, plus 40 Trump district or something. But on a statewide level, I think it's still not politically feasible to go all in on that. Um, but it's a, it's a it's a brave new world out there in terms of politics post-Trump. I mean, you see all these candidates announcing that they're running and they're Ads are all like shooting, you know, vaccine mandates and stuff with their guns. It's kind of scary. And uh, even if they don't, they don't win, they are certainly the people that are animating the current uh, right wing in America. Yeah, it is scary. And I'm, at this point, I just want to give a shout out to our friends at the hideout. I don't know if you saw this, uh, Miles, this uh, story broke in uh, Black Club. I want to, I think it was Black Club. Uh, there were vandals at the hideout. The hideout is, of course, the bar on the north side of Chicago. Uh, right in the middle of Lincoln Yards, uh, where um, for the last several years, uh, well, Maya, Duke Massive, and I do the show now, but before that was McDumkey, we do uh, First Tuesdays. Miles would come to First Tuesdays. I know you are you go to the uh, rock concerts at the hideout as well. Uh, and Vandals um, vandalized it and put spray paint on it. It's like bizarre, like fascistic, uh, anti-mask, anti-vaccine uh, uh, I don't know what to call them, hooligans, terrorists, whatever, and uh, trying to intimidate the hideout because, Miles, I don't know if you've been to the hideout lately, but to get in, you have to show a card that you've been uh, vaccinated. Uh, Anybody, me, you know, if you're on the show, you have to be vaccinated. When Tim Evans, Judge Evans was there that night, he had a show he was vaccinated. Uh, and, uh, so I think miles, the, the, that, that kind of angry rhetoric that you were just, uh, alluding to and, and commercials is playing out in some, some scary ways, uh, uh, on, on the local level as well. And it just seems like the right is so bold, you know, about, about, uh, defiant and angry about their positions and, uh, willing to get into other people's face and, you know, damage property and threaten people and uh, threaten the lives of people who disagree with them. We've seen that a lot lately. It is a very volatile uh, moment in American history. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. And that's a perfect example. I mean, yeah, shout out to the Tuttons and the whole hideout crew for holding it down there. Um, I'm going to a show there on Friday. Glad they're, you know, persevering through this i know they had the electricity line lines cut um really awful vandalism and you're right even in a place like chicago even in democratic stronghold this kind of um you know toxic 
uh, rhetoric is able to seep in and I think have a have an impact. And I think it's because the, the Republicans are cowards and they didn't, you know, try to push back against any of this venom as soon as it started to spew after after the sixth through Trump's whole election. Let's be honest, it wasn't just the storming the Capitol the whole time. He was saying he wasn't going to believe election results and and everything. And um, and even though at first he tried to take credit for the vaccine, you know, he's the guy who did Operation Warp Speed. He's just because of how much anti-vax rhetoric there was, he wasn't even allowed to promote the vaccine. He got booed for it. So now he's pivoting to full anti-vax. And, you know, and the worst thing is these people like look at Chuck Grassley, you know, who's uh, in his 80s and has long time been, you know, seemingly a traditional establishment Republican. He's embraced and he was anti-Trump at the beginning and he's embraced Trump's endorsement because he just knows that's where the tea leaves are. You know, he's he said, look, I would be an idiot if I did didn't accept uh, the endorsement of this incredibly popular Republican figure. And I think that the more these Republicans just go along with whatever the hell seems politically advantageous at the time, the more this, um, you know, just not just toxic rhetoric, but also uh, uh, violence is going to continue um, unabated. And that's just a sad, it's a sad referendum on where the, the GOP is and the fact that the only lesson seemingly they took from losing this election in 2020 was to get uh, more violent, more extreme, and actually try to get people to not get vaccinated against the disease that has caused so much death and pain um, in the past couple of years. Well, actually, I'll, I'll I'm feeling very gloomy these days. Maybe you could cheer me up, but uh, I'm when I look at Virginia, which is on my mind uh, these days, Virginia gubernatorial, uh, and the game that uh, their uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate is playing, it seems like their strategy is working. So you got Glenn Youngkin, who is just okay. He won't. Uh, invite Trump to the state or it's sort of asking Trump not to come to the state, but he's riding the wave of Trumpism. And so, as you said, he's walking that narrow line. So he's not taking a stand against false accusations that the election was stolen. He's not taking a stand against false accusations uh, that the vaccine was is government overreach. He's encouraging as much as he can uh, the rank and file of the Republican Party uh, to remain sort of hostile to all this. Uh, and at the same time, he's somehow or other convincing independent minded voters who voted against Trump to come to him. And Miles, when I see that happening, it to me, it's just a continuous shift rightward. This is the continuous shift rightward of politics in America, where you don't even have to denounce Trump or Trump's uh, policies anymore. And you could still win over people who voted against Trump. And I get it's, it's a frightening moment. You know, you know, and and part of it I know, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is that the Democrats continue to put like Terry McAuliffe. You were the one to put this in my mind. Terry McAuliffe, who's a Democrat, is just an old Clinton guy. And it's like we the Democrats cannot break from old Clinton guys. Uh, so it's like a replica of 2016. Your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I don't think 
I mean, I haven't been following the Virginia race super closely, so as a caveat, but I don't think Terry McAuliffe, even though he is an, you know, was previously the governor and because of crazy rules in Virginia, you can't run consecutively. So he's running now. I, I don't think he's the best person that the party could have put up to run against uh, Yunkin. I also think that be, partially because I think the, the message that would succeed, I mean, this is a guy who's uh, incredibly rich and powerful and has been on all the all these you know boards of these elite institutions and glenn yunkin you could run against him and just call him a you know uh, a hypocrite and say you're trying to you know stand up for working people that's what all of his ads say i'm standing up for working families and really you're just a rich guy like mitt romney you know run the obama 2012 playbook against him but mcauliffe is not the ideal person to do that because he's you know made a lot of money off of his political ties as well what have you that said at least he's you know running on a pretty you know uh it's somewhat progressive agenda compared to what you know some previous democratic uh gubernatorial candidates have run on the the area that Yunkin has succeeded i think so far and look the election is next week we haven't seen what happened yet it seems like Yunkin is closing the gap but um i think people still expect the democrat to win there partially because obama because biden won the state um pretty handily uh but I think that it's because of this education question and it's because of the school board stuff, largely because that's where he thought he got, you know, McAuliffe because McAuliffe said, hey, because the parents were saying, don't make our kids do masks and mandates and stuff. And McAuliffe just said, hey, we should listen to the CDC about this and stuff. And so then Yunkin's whole thing was, hey, this guy doesn't want parents making decisions about their kids. And that's become his whole campaign, basically, is just doing ad after ad saying Terry McAuliffe wants to take the power out of you, the parents' hands of how your kid is raised and goes to school. And so they've made it about liberty without saying that they're anti-vaccine or anti-vaccine mandate. They're just saying, look, Terry McAuliffe wants to silence the parents. And he hasn't, and McAuliffe, I don't think, has had a great um, retort to that. And he hasn't been like, hey, do a thing like they, you know, the senatorial candidates did in Georgia and say, hey, I'm actually fighting to get money into the hands of parents or something, you know, run on something, some kind of an idea that's going to set you apart from this other guy. But instead, he's left playing defense. And I think that that's led to this current um, unfortunate political situation where you're right, the Republican is, um, is increasing uh, his support, whereas the Democrats losing it. Yeah, I uh, uh, to your point, I, I watched this exchange. It really wasn't an exchange uh, diatribe at the Senate. Uh, uh, I forget when it was. It was maybe a couple of days ago. Uh, Tom Cotton, the senator from uh, Arkansas, was lambasting Merrick Garland, uh, the attorney general. I don't know if you saw this on the issue. And it, it was a uh, pun intended trumped up issue, just like a manufactured crisis about Merrick Garland and the Justice Department supposedly cracking down on parents uh, who want to speak out against critical race theory at their schools. And um, and I'm watching he's just bellowing at Garland, Garland and raising all these accusations at him and ask it in the form of quote, quote unquote questions. Uh, and then before Garland w- would try to assert like, uh, his response, Cotton would just talk over him. And uh, so, again, I look at these things and I go, Miles, this this can't possibly be popular, you know, with the Virginia equivalent uh, of DuPage County. You know what I mean? I, I cannot believe. 
and I know you're going to you tell me not to shame voters, but I cannot believe voters in DuPage County, you know, or Lake County or Northern Cook County who are, you know, they're kind of weak on union issues, but generally uh, pretty uh, progressive on social issues would fall for this. So this is kind of what I'm watching to see where we're going as a country politically. Uh, will that, you know, those quote unquote swing voters uh, move right because they fall under the sway of like opposition to critical race theory or uh, mask mandates. I don't know. I, I don't know what the future is on that. Well, I think that it's, you know, political truism that when a certain party's in control, certainly when they're in control of all three branches of, uh, or, you know, the, the house, the Senate and the, uh, white house, they tend to lose, you know, in upcoming elections, not always when it comes to state level gubernatorial races, but this is the first big test for Democrats. I mean, you could say the California recall was, although that was pretty clear and Democrat should have won that and, and, and ultimately did. Um, but this is the first big like off year election test, I think for Democrats in the Biden era. And it is common for voters to, you know, because they seek out balance or whatever your political analysis is to, um, to reward the opposition party versus the one that's in power. The Democrats goal uh, to pivot a little bit, the Democrats goal was to have something to run on and, you know, to pass some real transformational legislation. You know, Biden was saying he's going to be the next FDR and LBJ combined all this. Um, and so they put together this agenda that they were hoping to have passed and to be running on at this point. Um, and yet that is mired in, you know, the closets of Congress. Now there still isn't even a bill written as part of this reconciliation package, the build back better plan, as they're calling it. Um, it's now been whittled down uh, to just some basics, basically due to the intransigence of some uh, right wing Democrats in the Senate. Um, maybe in the House too, but definitely in the Senate. And and they won't even agree to what they've put forward at this point. So today there's been a lot of uh, positioning and, you know, wrangling over this uh, legislation, but they haven't passed it. And I think that that is a huge, uh, you know, con when it comes to people running like Terry McAuliffe and other Democrats in Virginia that want to have something to show for what was accomplished under Biden. Um, right now, you know, they passed the American Rescue Plan. People did get some checks. That was good, obviously. But um, that was a long time ago now. And and I think voters are looking for, hey, what have you done for me lately? And Democrats don't have a great argument for that now because, unfortunately, there's been a huge push by, as I said, right-wing Democrats to water down the legislation and, you know, pack it full of corporate giveaways and everything. So um, so that that hasn't helped McAuliffe much. All right, let's talk about that. Uh, you you and I were very uh, enthusiastic early on. Uh, when you're just listening to you talk about Joe, Joe Biden claiming that he would be carrying on in the tradition of FDR and LBJ without the Vietnam War, of course. Uh, I, I remember uh, those conversations we were having in the early uh, months following uh, Biden's election or his inauguration. Uh, so what's your uh, thoughts on what progressives in Congress for lack of a better word, I'll call them progressives, uh, can do uh, to keep the pressure on Biden to make good on his pledge to be more like FDR and LBJ? Well, they certainly shouldn't vote for this bipartisan infrastructure deal before there's a vote on the 
uh, reconciliation package, even the version, the, you know, measly version that uh, has been created due to cinema and mansions uh, demands. And that's what they're being pressured to do today. You know, they had a meeting this morning with the House caucus did with um, President Biden and later with uh, Speaker Pelosi joined that joined the meeting and pushed for a vote today on the bipartisan package so that Biden could have something to, you know, as I mentioned before, you have something that McAuliffe can point to down in Virginia, um, but also that he can supposedly bring to this UN climate meeting that he's that he's going to uh, COP twenty six, I think. Uh, I don't know why Joe Biden would want to bring an infrastructure bill to a climate meeting. You know, the, 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 the infrastructure bill is all money for roads and bridges and other stuff that would support fossil fuel infrastructure based infrastructure, not any of the climate stuff that's in the reconciliation package. I think if anything, Biden would want them to vote on that first, you know, rather than the infrastructure stuff, but whatever, that's what the white house and apparently democratic leadership has decided as a priority is to vote on the bipartisan one first. So the best thing progressives could do is just don't do that you know hold off on voting for that until they actually have a bill written um and hopefully you know passed but this framework stuff we've heard that a million times it's just another game of chicken you know meant to i think get democrats to fall in line and if hey if the progressives hadn't stopped the this from happening at the end of last month i don't know if you remember there was the whole thing with that guy josh gottheimer and his crew of the centrist eight or nine or whatever that was demanding a vote on the bipartisan bill first a month ago if they would have done that we wouldn't even have the 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 measly build back better reconciliation plan we have now you know they would have just done that and mansion would have gone and you know ridden his houseboat out to the ocean somewhere and <laughs> said you know well you deal with it later or something doing a strategic pause as he called it so i mean you know it's it's to their credit that uh that the left flank of the democrats in congress even got to this point you know um but that said it's gone through a lot of you know transformations in the past few weeks and it is not i would say the level of lbj fdr that initially that legislation would have been when it came out of the um the chairman of the budget committee bernie sanders office when he wrote that 3.5 trillion dollar bill this is not that this is some other frankenstein version of it which still an advance and worth holding your vote uh, over the bipartisan bill for, but it still is not going to do the type of transformational change that we were initially promised. No. And I think the reality is, I, mean, I talk about this with another guest all the time. David Ferris comes on the show all the time. We talk about this. The reality is uh, the Democrats don't actually have a majority control of the Senate. And uh, I just think at some point Democrats have to realize that that is a reality uh, that whatever cinema and Joe Manchin are, whatever, you know, they, they may claim to be Democrats. They may run in the Democratic primary. They may uh, enable Chuck Schumer to be uh, the leader of the Senate and Democrats to control the committees. So that's all important stuff because of their position as Democrats. Bernie Sanders as the head of the budget committee. Uh, but the reality is they don't have voting control. Uh, and so you can't even talk about the filibuster fight because they don't have the 50 votes they need uh, to get the, the matter to um, 
Vice President Harris to provide the decisive vote, even if you get rid of the filibuster. And I feel as though strategically, this is a challenge that the Democrats, and I have no answer for it, uh, Miles, have no clue as to uh, how to solve. The reality is they do not control the Senate. Uh, And I don't know going forward what the Democrats can do about that uh, in the next year. Your thoughts? Yeah, you summed it up. I mean, I think that this bill is going to be a real test. And right now, I think that the side everything's coming down on is that the veto power lies with, you know, the effective president of the Senate, Joe Manchin, you know, who's able to get everything. I mean, they just dropped paid leave. That's what the Democrats ran on. They dropped prescription drug pricing. That's what, the prescription drug. Can I just say Medicare getting Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices is what Democrats ran on in 2006. Right. That's what they ran on when they were running against the Iraq war, when they were running, you know, the all the Rom blue dogs and everything. And in 2006, that was the promise you get. You elect Democrats. We're going to let Medicare renegotiate drug prices to lower them across the board, especially things like insulin, life saving drugs that are, you know, priced up 100 times by insurance companies here. That was the promise Democrats made. They made it again in 2018 when they um, when when they ran and one in the house and now here we are with trifecta you know with, with total control over our politics over our political system seemingly in, in democratic hands and yet they can't deliver on this very basic thing you know they took that out of this reconciliation bill so i think it just goes to show you know what joe biden likes to say is we need to pass these types of social programs to show that democracy still works, you know, that it can deliver. And I think that that's especially, he makes that case around climate versus autocratic countries, you know, places that have embraced a different style of government that is much more, you know, in the hands of the few that eschews democracy completely. And clearly we're having a debate whether we know we are or not in this country over the effectiveness of democracy because of how, you know, these debates over voting rights and how we determine elections and who actually wins. If you're going to act, if you're going to, you know, try to prove to people that democracy works better than autocracy, uh, you need to deliver on the basic stuff that you said you would do if you got into office so that people don't have a completely cynical view of government. And the easiest way for, to start that, I think, is through something like prescription drug pricing that you've talked about for years that makes no sense that, you know, people in Canada pay one-tenth of what we pay for life-saving drugs simply because we have this inane system. Um, and yet we can't get that through because of, as I said, intransigence among particular Democrats. I don't know if it's just Manchin and Cinema because neither of them will really talk about what they their demands are. They just negotiate behind closed doors. There might be other people in the Democratic establishment that have, you know, corporate backing that are opposed to that too. But what we see is that at least the progressive leaders have been fighting to the nail to keep this stuff, which is what Biden ran on, which is what Democrats ran on. So I think that we just need to look at things as where they are. And like right now, there's not a, um, majority in the U.S. Senate that is willing to even go to where the Democratic 
agenda was in 2006, let alone, you know, what Biden ran on in 2020. And that's a huge challenge. And it just means you got to play hardball. And I think the way the Republicans have been able to enact their agenda is by having people that believe the most in their um, ideological goals playing hardball. And for them, it's lowering taxes on yeah. corporations and the rich. And they succeeded at that, you know? And if, we, and if, and if Democrats believe in raising taxes on corporations and, and the rich in order to fund social programs, they need to go all out to, to make that happen. Um, and we, all, we came very close to having a version of that happening just a few days ago when there was this billionaire tax proposed. Of course, it got shot down by Manchin eventually, but it was seen as like a compromise. And that would have actually tried started to change the um, dynamic in this country to provide more um, support for working people through demanding more of the super rich in this country. And unfortunately, <laughs> in our political system, we still couldn't get that passed. I got to say, uh, let's get into that taxing the rich. Uh, I, I saw some parallels between uh, the short-lived proposal for a billionaire's tax, which would again be targeted at the richest of the rich. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like the richest of the even like even a high-paid in these times writer and editors and high-paid Chicago reader uh, columnists would not be included in this tax <laughs> for all the fabulous wealth that Miles and I have. We would not be included. The richest of the rich. They couldn't get that through. And Elon Musk. Uh, the head of Tesla uh, tweeted out this one. I don't know if you saw this. If they raise taxes on me, they can raise taxes on you. And when I read that, I'm a laughing because it reminded me of the fair tax uh, rhetoric that came in here in Illinois, which defeated the proposal to raise the rates on the highest earners in the state of Illinois. Uh, and they used the same general argument. We're first, but you're next. Hello, voters. If they can't raise the taxes on Elon Musk, <laughs> And on Kenny G, they're raising them on you because someone's got to pay. <laughs> Someone has to pay. The, the Chicago Sun-Times and the corporate community, it seems like they want to build a stadium for the Bears. Someone's going to have to pay for that. Kenny G's not paying for that because he defeated the fair tax. So, Miles, it's like it doesn't seem help, – help, help us out of here. Like when you have Elon Musk leading the charge, one of the world's wealthiest men, Right up there with uh, Bezos. I don't know who's number one at this stage. And successfully, like, intimidating cinema and uh, mansion to back off from attacks on billionaires. Man. I don't, I, I don't know what Democrats can do. It just seems like they're scared of their own shadow. Go ahead, Miles. Yeah, they're locked. Uh, Bezos and Musk are locked in some kind of, you know, celebrity wealth match all the time where they're going back and forth and claiming the title. Uh, but both of them were outspoken against this billionaire's tax and, uh, no shock because we saw in the, you know, ProPublica published last June, this trove of documents showing that Musk and Bezos and their like of the, you know, upper echelon of the wealth. I mean, these are people worth, like many, many tens, hundreds of billions of dollars um, are paying effectively nothing in, in taxes to the United States government. Some of the, sometimes literally zero. And people might think like, how is that possible? Right? Like these people own and hold, hold more wealth than, you know, hundreds of millions of, of, of people. 
So how are they not paying any taxes? Well, it's because we have, because they're doing it legally, because we have a tax structure in the United States that allows for legal tax avoidance. And that is what our, you know, elected representatives have decided is permissible. Until that changes, that's going to be the, just the state of affairs. We can't lock them up for not paying their taxes. You can do that for certain people, you know. So you, we've seen plenty of people go to prison for, for tax evasion. Wesley Snipes, you know, celebrities these are people in the you know millionaire category not the billionaire once you get up to that um, echelon you're just paying people to figure out how to use the loopholes um, and you know not to give too much of a, a, a tax policy 101 but the way that people like you and I Ben make our money is we get a paycheck right and we're paying income taxes on that paycheck we're paying probably 22 20 some percent of our of our paycheck initially so that's getting taken off the top elon musk jeff bezos they're taking paltry salaries from their companies i think bezos is like 80 or eighty-five thousand dollars a year or something that's their the stated income and that's it Right. And that seems like nothing because all their money is held in stocks. And so the only time they ever have to pay any taxes on that is as a capital gains tax. And that's only if they sell the stock and then they're only paying it on the whatever they're, you know, getting back from it, whatever they're benefiting from the income. And they rarely ever do that. They they in order to spend money, people like Bezos and Musk and the super rich, they just take out loans from banks in order to cover costs of like their new car, their new SpaceX venture or whatever it is. Um, And then they get to write that off because it's a loan from a bank. Um, And then if they need to pay off that loan, they take off a loan from another bank because they know they're good for it. So they can get hundreds of millions of dollars. This is the world of financialized capital we live in right now, where it's a regime run by the super rich and it's a system designed solely to benefit them. Um, And yet that's so much untapped wealth, which we could be using to, that's why when we say, you know, we're the richest country in the world, we should be able to provide healthcare to all of our people. That's what we mean is that these people are just sitting with, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in offshore accounts. Um, and they're doing it because they're able to legally get around that in the United States. That's why Elon Musk is in the United States, even though he's like a South African and Canadian citizen. He's, he's doing his business here because he knows this is where he can get away with the most. Um, and that's why they're so resistant to the idea of a billionaire's tax. That said, it's one of the most popular public policies that you, you can poll for is to tax the rich and especially to tax the, the ultra rich. So why we're not doing it? I mean, just look at our, our history, right? Like in the in the early 20th century, in like 19, 1910s, we had a tax rate in like the 90 per, 90th percentile. It wasn't until Kennedy came in in the 60s that he eventually lowered it into the 70s. And then it wasn't really until the Reagan revolution, and this is income taxes, this is before we even broke off investment taxes. Um, it wasn't even until this, uh, you know, the, the Reagan revolution, then they brought it down. And then Gingrich in the 90s decided he was going to make his whole stake of the contract in America. We're going to help make a fairer tax code by taxing investments differently than um, than income. And that has led us to this current situation where now people are basically able to just live in this completely fictional wealth world where they never get taxed on anything because it, it they're effectively lying to the government about how much they own, um, what their assets are and what their income are uh, in order to get around it. And it's completely legal. 
Um, and until we change those laws, until we actually enforce some type of a billionaire tax, which look around the world, other places have much higher tar- marginal tax rates, and they certainly have higher minimum corporate tax rates and minimum individual tax rates than we have. We're just not going to be able to deal with the social problems we have because we're just leaving all this money. And not to mention the political inequality that that, that creates when certain people have so much wealth and influence over um, the system. We're just not going to be able to deal with it. So there was a bright shining moment like last week or even just a few days ago when it seemed like the Congress might wind up doing this billionaire tax in order to fund the uh, reconciliation bill. It seemed like it had the support of Cinema and Mansion, uh, and Mansion. But of course, uh, once they found out a little bit more about it, that it was going to hurt some people that you know they know. I'm sure they got some phone calls from some lobbyists for some people. Who knows who the billionaires' lobbyists are? Um, they drew cold water on that. But it, but but it just goes to show the imperative nature of fixing this um, grossly unequal tax system in this country, so that we can. Uh, you know, actually fund the kind of programs we need to uh, help the vast majority of people who, as we know, are in desperate need of policies like health care and child care and so on. Yeah, that's a great riff, Miles. I give you credit. That was really well done. Uh, and uh, I wrote this down while you were talking, worship of wealth. And there's a worship of wealth in our country. Uh, you know, the celebrityhood of Bezos and the celebrityhood really of uh, Elon Musk, even probably greater than. Uh, I remember when Elon Musk had this proposal that he cooked up with Mayor Rahm. We'll get to Mayor Rahm in a little bit uh, to uh, build a speedy train that would go underground. That's the sound it would make from the loop to O'Hare. An enormous amount of money. I, we hadn't quite. They never came out and said who was going to pay for it, although we all really in the back of our mind knew the taxpayers would pay for it uh, to what to service the highest, <laughs> the wealthiest class of uh, travelers who come to Chicago, you know, uh, fly in O'Hare and want to be able to get from O'Hare uh, to the loop in an instant. Uh, and, you know, just the fact that Elon Musk had proposed it, uh, it's, I just remember the way it was presented. Well, Elon Musk, you know, and it's kind of dazzled people. I know the subtitles was like, and the Tribune were all like, Elon Musk. They just kept saying that name. And, uh, you know, he was the guy in Joe Rogan smoking the reefer. And, you know, he seems like the, people are just dazzled by wealth. And you see with Kenny G, too, you know, the Kenny Griffin over here, he'll give a pronouncement about crime in Chicago. And, you know, the Tribune will quote him and the cranes were like, like the Pope has spoken. And I, I just sit here and I'm like, why, why? I mean, what, what is it, Miles? Did people think they're just, they themselves are going to get rich if they say nice things about Elon Musk? Like Elon Musk is going to give you money if you vote, to, you know, against your interest and for his interest. Please explain to me the this worship of wealth that we have in the United States of America and in the city of Chicago as well. Go ahead. Yeah. The, the, the shadow of Gordon Gecko looms large over, over our politics and our economy. This idea that greed is good. Uh, I mean, it's hard to pathologize what is going on in our, our, our culture. I think that there's way more appetite for, um, type of uh, strong will class war rhetoric and, and, you know, actually taking on the rich. And I think if anything you saw by the huge, um, 
amount of public support that Bernie Sanders garnered in his presidential campaigns. I think you see that there's people that are ready to take on uh, obscene levels of wealth and try to build a more fair society. Uh, but you're right. We are also, uh, when you look at our mass culture, it's all decadence is what is rewarded and, and, you know, considered to be, uh, positive goals to ascend to this idea that you're one, you know, lottery ticket or one, you know, big payday away from hitting the big time, um, still is part of how I think a lot of us are taught to view how the economy works. You know, we're not actually poor or we're not actually working class. We're just haven't gotten rich yet. And as soon as long as we can, you know, keep our eyes on the prize, that's somehow, um, you know, payday is waiting for us. I don't, I don't think that that's what most people think. I think that that's just like an ingrained sensibility. Um, but again, I don't want to, you know, pathologize people too much. I think the way to get around it though, is to stop doing that, you know, stop giving all the headlines to the richest people and, you know, the whims of what they do, stop treating them like celebrities and start treating them like enemies of our democracy. You know, if you look back to the days of like Teddy Roosevelt, the rich were considered robber barons, right? Like he ran on trust busting about like breaking up corporate power and taking on the Vanderbilts and the, um, you know, all of the, the, the powerful families that were controlling the wealth in our country. We don't have that type of vocabulary today besides some outspoken, more, you know, left and socialist leaning politicians. We don't see that very much, you know, calling out obscene levels of wealth and making that, uh, uh, some type of a liability for, for, for these people and making them embarrassed about it. Instead, we tend to embrace opulence, certainly in our, in our mainstream media, partially because our mainstream media is owned, like Washington Post is owned by people like Jeff Bezos, you know, so there's a kind of feedback loop going on. Um, so I, I think that that has a lot to do with it in terms of like the, what we're being fed, the stories we're being told about it. I would just say against all odds, though, uh, despite all that being true, taxing the rich is one of the most popular policies that exists in America right now. People want to see people paying their fair share, um, even with all of those caveats. So I think that that goes to show it's there's, there's plenty of appetite for creating a more fair tax system. I agree with you on that point. And uh, before we move on to the next subject, I just I was remembering that uh, at one point when Michael Madigan was Speaker of the House and he wanted to avoid, oh God, the way that guy played the game. But anyway, uh, when he was Speaker of the House and he wanted to avoid uh, a vote on uh, a progressive tax, raising the rates, they, they had a referendum. I don't know if you remember this. I don't know if, what year it was. I've lost track of time. Uh, on a millionaire. It wasn't even a billionaire's. It was a millionaire's, uh, raising a millionaire's tax. And it was very popular. Uh, now, again, it wasn't a binding referendum, so uh, the millionaires of the world, the billionaires of the world didn't dig in and fight it, but it was just flat-out referendum, and it was very popular up and down the state, not just in Chicago, it was popular downstate. I remember looking at the totals, the results, going, oh, my God, this you're right, uh, this, this did reflect uh, sort of a, a general sense that people want fairness if nothing else they understand that the the more some rich guy pays the less they have to pay i mean i think people somewhere in the back of their mind understand that uh but they don't always uh act on it all right let's uh close i mentioned already rom 
Mayor Rahm. Uh, and uh, it's a pretty sad state of affairs for uh, democracy in America, Miles, when the only bipartisanship I see uh, is when Democrats and Republicans in the Senate come together uh, to vote for Mayor Rahm uh, to be ambassador to Japan. Uh, and I've had people on both sides of the issue on this show. Uh, there are those who say, uh, Ben, let it go. Let him just move on with his life. Uh, let him become ambassador. At least he'll be outside of Chicago. There's bigger fish to fry. Uh, and so uh, they should just allow Joe Biden to uh, move Rom uh, to Japan. And there's something to be said for that. On the other hand, uh, if I just isolate it to how Rom handled the Kwan McDonald uh, murder, I just <laughs> I find it very hard to accept that uh, a mayor who, in my humble opinion, and all the evidence seems to show, buried evidence of a murder uh, to protect his, what he thought was protecting his political future, she could be rewarded uh, with uh, being approved as ambassador to Japan. Uh, so, but uh, that hearing last week was very disappointing. Miles, remember we talked about how, oh, they're going to ask him some hard questions. Well, MAGA rolled over. They didn't even show up. Maga, you're pathetic. That was the most pathetic rollover I've ever seen. Meanwhile, Tom Cotton's yelling at Merrick Garland. Uh, so, Miles, what's your take on uh, Ambassador Rahm, uh, who it looks as though uh, the Senate will confirm him? Go ahead. Well, I'm not shocked that uh, the best buddy of Chris Christie, who was, you know, just rolled over completely to Trump and Trumpism, uh, Rahm Emanuel, you know, Christie's co-star on ABC Sunday mornings, uh, that he's being embraced by the the right because they know he's not really a threat. You know, Rahm's not going to mess with whatever the status quo is. And if anything, he's going to... I think people are downplaying. I understand the position of um, some of your guests who have said, let's just let him right off into the sunset. Tokyo or what what have you uh, I think there's a lot of damage he could really do as ambassador both symbolically obviously this idea that we're elevating and rewarding somebody who uh, was you know acted against all the principles that the Biden administration has claimed to uphold of justice you know of um, of racial justice of police reform um, of working to like build the social safety net rather than uh, enact austerity measures, which is exactly what Rom did at the behest of his corporate friends um, as mayor. But also beyond the symbolic level, uh, he's going to be the ambassador to Japan. That's one of the most important relationships uh, in terms of foreign policy that we're going to have in the United States. And uh, the Biden administration has already shown this kind of saber rattling posture towards China, the neighbor to Japan, and has talked about everything in terms of a national security um, competition between the United States and China. And from his perch in as the ambassador to Japan, Rom could certainly make that far worse, you know, to build up tensions and to create a much more unstable uh, situation there. So I think, you know, I don't know what will happen because those confirmation hearings didn't really tell us anything. Nobody really asked much and nothing much was said about what Rom plans to do as ambassador of Japan. But I think that that's um, going to be more 
dangerous than a lot of folks uh, are initially even thinking. Uh, the flip side is, yes, it's, it's good. He's not like actively in the cabinet like it could have been worse. You know, many of us initially when Biden, he was floating ROM for housing or transportation secretary. And I wrote about this. You probably did, too. A lot of people at the time were like, look, Biden, why would you reward this guy? He's toxic. He's politically toxic, which I still think is true in the city of Chicago. Why he couldn't run for mayor for a third time um, and that ambassador Japan was some kind of compromise, right? Because, because Ram had been on team Biden from the earliest days and Biden tends to reward his loyal, you know, friends or whatever. And for, you know, better or for worse, even when Biden looked to be stumbling in the early days of the, the 2020 primary, when Bernie was winning Iowa, when he was winning New Hampshire, um, uh, Rom stood by Biden. So in a way, it makes sense just on that level. Like, of course, you're going to reward people. But this is somebody who should not have a political career at all. I mean, he's already just look what he did since he left office. He went to work for an investment firm and made tens of millions of dollars. Like, that's his priority. Um, so we know what Rom is going to be looking out for as uh, ambassador to Japan. And it's a sad state of affairs that there's not more either from the right uh, or even from the democratic party there's not more more resistance in congress to him getting this cushy job yeah no it uh they rolled over uh, i hope bernie's votes no uh yeah i can't imagine bernie voting for uh, rahm emanuel uh, particularly because he campaigned against him back in 2015 and 16 and but we shall see. Uh, politics is often ends up very bizarre coalitions. I can't see Bernie voting for Ron. Can you? I, I don't think he'll need Bernie's vote. You know, I don't think it'll even it'll even right. matter. They might just do one of these voice vote things yeah. like they did the other day and not even record it because of how much <laughs> seriously because of how much support he has. But yeah, one yeah. thing can I just say really quick? I was remembering the other day that in 2019 when the Chicago Teachers Union went out on strike, there is an incredible video of Joe Biden, then presidential candidate, then you know Democratic primary candidate, uh, running calling up Jesse Sharkey on the phone, the head of the teachers union and giving his full support to the teachers out on the streets. So I just want to say if, you know, that's, that was Joe Biden's as candidates position. Uh, if he still, you know, if he still believes in the rights of teachers, we know Jill Biden, his wife was a teacher. He's, you know, talks about being friends with Randy Weingarten, 11 teachers stand with the Chicago teachers union. Who's demanding, you know, uh, that the, uh, administration at CPS actually like negotiates with them over all kinds of issues that they're just refusing to negotiate over right now. I mean, it's kind of absurd just watching that video and seeing how on board Biden was for the teachers militancy then for him to be kind of silent on this stuff. Now it's a little bit, uh, you know, makes you, yeah. makes you think twice about it, the whole thing. Uh, yes, that was then. This is now. All right, Miles. Uh, thank you very much. I may see you tonight. We're we'll be, again, as I said, we'll be both at the we're both going to be at the Bulls game. We're both sort of sitting up in the same nosebleed section. Uh, I don't think we'll be with uh, Lori or Rama. No, <laughs> we'll see them down, uh, you know, on the uh, first level. But uh, I don't care. I've uh, my days sitting in the nosebleed section go back to the seventies. Uh, 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 when I would go to see my beloved Chicago Bulls at the old Chicago Stadium with my friends, uh, shout out to Josh 
I see you out there, Josh. And uh, Norman Van Leer and those great Bulls teams. So um, my love for the Bulls continues, and I'll see you there tonight. Or maybe I, I think we're in the same general section. I think I'm actually going to see you tonight, Miles. So uh, I think so, too. And 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 uh, let's give a sh- quick shout-out to Joakim Noah because he's, you know, one of the all-time greats on the Bulls. If there was anybody that embodied the Chicago mentality, uh, it's, you know, him becoming he's defensive player of the year nominations he after Derek Rose got hurt he just took the team on his shoulders he got us through some really rugged playoff series and um, always he's got the Noah's Ark Foundation that's still doing great work in Chicago he never uh, left that behind he's a real hometown hero and you know as he's had a wild career today he just had a ceremonial re-signing with the Bulls so that he can retire as a Bull tonight uh, you know Michael Reinsdorf the whole crew was hanging out with him last night so I think they're going to show him a good um, you know final uh, send off in Chicago tonight and you know regardless of what happens between the you know our, our fighting 4-0 Chicago Bulls and the New York Knicks tonight uh, I think it will it'll, it'll be good to give a good send off to uh, uh, one of Chicago's most beloved sports stars Joakim Noah Great. Uh, two moments in my mind uh, popping. Uh, uh, two moments popping in my mind when I think of Joe Kim Noah and the Chicago Bulls, 2009, stealing the ball from Paul Pierce in one of the greatest playoff games of all time, Game Six in the Chicago and then uh, United it, Center, right? and dunking it. Plays going crazy. Bulls somehow or other. That was before Thibodeau. Uh, the Bulls somehow or other uh, forced a Game Seven. Didn't go their way, but uh, I just remember that one. And then of course, I think it was 2013. No, uh, Derek. Rose, the Bulls were really down and out, and uh, God, everybody was hurt and injured. And Joe Kim Noah is playing on one foot, uh, basically, because uh, plantar fasciitis, I think, was the problem. Uh, and they're limping and beating the Nets, uh, the Brooklyn Nets, and that was such a great series. So, yeah, Joe Kim Noah, they didn't win the championship. But see, this is my point. I always say this to, I this is something I've come to to learn and appreciate with age really championships are overrated my friends it's entertainment it's do they give you everything they got do, you know do they inspire you do they make you give you something to talk about with your friends uh yeah the you know, uh, great moments. Some of my favorite teams never won a championship. 1972 White Sox, 1977 White Sox, you know, so 2011 Bulls, 2013 Bulls, great teams. So you're right. Joe Kim Noah, I'll be there tonight and I'll be uh, standing and cheering just like Miles. All right, Miles, thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Miles Kamflassen from In These Times. Uh, and. Uh, I'll see you tonight. And yes, go Dolphins. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. D. <laughs> Proud graduate of Whitney Young, the Whitney Young Dolphins. He was not on the swimming team, but he did go to Whitney Young. Uh, and um, I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy, Illinois, without whom the show would be possible. And yes, that was the man playing the dolphin noise. And as Miles will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Fuck you, then. Who are you to tell me what I'm doing? Holy shit.